Our scripture passage comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's printed in your bulletin. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 to 20. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we consider a very difficult chapter in your dealings with your people, that you'd help us to truly understand what's here, and Lord, that you'd help us to truly understand what's here for us. I pray, Father, that your word would be understood and loved by each of us, that we would see your glory in it. And I pray that you would use your word in our lives this morning to accomplish its purposes. Thank you that we can have confidence, Lord, that you will do this. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, this morning brings us to the final week in this first section of our You Are Here series. You'll remember that this series has three distinct movements and this first movement has been centered in, in what we call the Old Testament. And that's what we come to the end of today. So to review a little bit, last week we talked about the covenant that God made with David. And we talked about God's promise to David that he would raise up his offspring and establish his kingdom. We saw that there were all kinds of connections between the offspring of David and, and the offspring that God had promised to Abraham and that had promised would come through Eve. And how really the entire storyline of the Bible built up to this one person who would come, who would crush the serpent, who would break the curse, who would bless the nations, and who would establish the eternal kingdom of God on earth. And so then we saw that David had a son, right? King Solomon. And, and, and many of the things that God promised would happen, started to happen with Solomon. 
And, and the question we almost could ask is, is was Solomon, is, is, is he the one? Is this the one we've been waiting for? But then we saw that our hopes were dashed when Solomon began to go after other gods and abandon the one true God and break the covenant that God had given him. We read about this downfall of Solomon in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 to 13, which I'll read for us here. It says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And so after Solomon died, it happened just like God said. His son made some really poor decisions, and as a result, 10 of the tribes of Israel rebelled against him and picked their own king and set up their own kingdom. And the house of David was left as just a shell of its former glory. Just the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and likely Simeon got lumped in with them, staying loyal to the crown. And what we see as we keep reading through the, the book of First and then into Second Kings, that those ten northern tribes that broke away from the crown almost immediately fell into complete apostasy. They completely abandoned the God of Israel. So their first king, Jeroboam, he didn't want the people to go to worship at Jerusalem. So what, he, what did he do? He set up a couple of golden calves for them to worship, just like the golden calf that people had worshipped at the foot of Mount Sinai, because that worked out for them so well, right? And not just one, but two. And he repeats the exact same words that Aaron spoke. As he sets up the golden calves, he says, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It could not have been any more deliberate. It was like they were spitting in God's face directly. It's hard to imagine they went from where they were under David's leadership and to a certain extent at the beginning of Solomon's leadership to complete reversal, just like Mount Sinai all over again. And God would have been just to do what? God would have been just to destroy them right then and there. He would have been completely just to do that. But God was patient with Israel. And for 200 years, he sent them. And when I say Israel, I'm referring to those northern 10 tribes, the kingdom of Israel. For 200 years, he sent them prophets, prophets like Elijah. He gave them every possible opportunity to turn and repent. But then finally God did what he had promised to do all along. And he gave them what they deserved, what they had deserved all along. So it happened in 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded. They destroyed their cities, they destroyed Samaria, and they took the people into exile. So what, what's going on there? Like why, why this whole exile piece? Well, part of what's going on here is that when, when a major superpower like the Assyrians, they were a major empire, 
when they would conquer a land, they wanted to make sure that those people in that land would never rebel against them, wouldn't kind of band together and try to, try to fight back. And so what they would do is they would essentially try to erase the identity of the people that they conquered. So they would take, when they, when they would conquer land, they would take thousands of the people from that land and bring them and make them live other places. And then they would bring other people and make them live in those people's land. So that you, they just kind of mixed everybody around the whole globe to make sure that no one really had a strong group of people around them that they could kind of pull together with and to make sure that they would never rebel against the people. And so when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, they, they basically erased them off the map for good from ever being a people from that point on. At least that's what they, they attempted to do. Israel ceased to exist as a nation. Now in the south, the kingdom of Judah, as it came to be known under the house of David, they did a little bit better than the northern kingdom because some of their kings followed God. Now, most of them didn't. If you look at a a chart of the list of the kings of the northern kingdom and the south kingdom, and and if you were to see, you know, beside each, whether they were good or bad or sort of, in the north, pretty much all bad. In the south, you have a few that would come along that that were faithful to the Lord, but never quite as faithful as David, for the most part. And these brief seasons of faithfulness never lasted for long. And when they did, the people followed them, right? Because the king would destroy the idols and cleanse out the temple and things would be great. But it never lasted long. And before long, the people were falling back into the sin of the people before that. And and the overall picture was really, really bleak. And so the southern kingdom only survived about 140 years longer than, than the northern kingdom. Before they eventually to receive what God had promised. So about 340 years of a a dynasty in the south, the kingdom of Judah, and then then it happened. Then they got what they deserved. Finally, happened in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, also known as the Chaldeans or the Chaldeans, as we read here in in 2 Chronicles. He came and he destroyed Jerusalem. And and it happened in stages, but that, that final destruction was really the end. Destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, like we read, we read that all, right? And just that passage that we just read and took thousands of people into exile because they did the same thing as the Assyrians. They would just try to erase the identity of, of the people that they had conquered. And that passage that we just read reminded us that, that God had warned them, right? There's no surprise here. All that they were doing was receiving what, what he had promised. And so finally began the exile. So like we've just said, the exile shouldn't be surprised. It had come as a part of the the covenant curses back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. When God God spoke to his people and promised them the blessing if they would obey and the curses if they would disobey, the the, the exile was a big part of the curses that, that he promised them. So we read in Deuteronomy 28 verse 36 that if God's people broke their covenant with him, he said this, Deuteronomy 28, 36, that he would bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And then further down in the chapter, Deuteronomy 28, verses 64, it says, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. 
So right there is part of the covenant curses, that if they continued to disobey God, that he was going to cast them out of their land and send them to all other places where they would just get swallowed up by the cultures around them. So it's a part, the, the, the exile was a part of the covenant curses if they were to disobey God. But I think we can see that it, this is different from the other covenant curses. It's, it's, it's the capstone. It's the end game. Because instead of people coming to their land and just oppressing them in their land, now in the exile, they were the ones being removed from their land. Just think about that. The land, the land that God had, had done so much to give them. Right? Think of the exodus out of Egypt and the 10 plagues and everything that God did to give his people this land. And it was as if God was now pressing undo on the exodus from Egypt. And God was sending Israel back to being a people with no land and no leader. But what made the exile the worst, probably the worst part about this, was the fact that to be, to be ejected from the land was to be away from the presence of God. You'll remember that at this stage in, in the history of, of redemption, God's presence was manifested in the tabernacle. And then later when Solomon built the temple, God's glory filled the temple. And that's where God's presence was manifested. That was the dwelling place of God. And that's where you went if you wanted to be near God and worship him. It's something we forget because we're, we're, we don't operate, at least we shouldn't operate this way in the new covenant, which is something we're going to talk about later. And then Jesus said to the woman at the well, right? It's neither in Jerusalem nor here will you worship God, but you're going to worship him in spirit and truth. Wherever God's people are, that's where they can worship God and where God is. But it was not that way always. And, and at this stage in redemptive history, you wanted to be near God. That meant taking a trip to the temple, so it's interesting, we read through the Psalms, for example, about all of these, the Psalms that, that talk about a longing for God's presence, a longing to be near God and to be with God. You know what that's all talking about? It's talking about the temple. It's talking about a longing to go and be in Jerusalem, in the presence of God, in the temple. Right? That's that Psalm, you know, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It's talking literally about the courts of God in the temple. The people that loved God wanted to be there with him. And so in the exile, to be ejected from the land, to be removed from the land, meant to be cut off from the presence of God. It was like being back in this place of Adam and Eve, kicked out of the Garden of Eden and sent east, cut off from the presence of God. the exile essentially rolled back all of the ways that God had been working to remove the curse and to bring his people closer to himself. All of it is gone. But not quite gone. Because as, as we've touched on before, just two chapters after all those, those curses in Deuteronomy 28 come words that speak of hope and forgiveness and restoration even from exile. And so listen to these words. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses one to four. 
words spoken through Moses to Israel before they had ever taken, taken the land. And when these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, listen to this, among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And listen to this. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. That, that was a promise that he had given them. And as, as the exile approached and actually took place, God continued to speak to his people through the prophets, reminding them again and again of, of the promises, reminding them that he had not abandoned them. See, this is something, it's, this is kind of a side note, this isn't in my notes here, but if you ever decide, which you, hopefully you do at some point, to read through the Bible from cover to cover, one of the best ways that I recommend that you do that is to read through the Bible chronologically. So right, right now, the Bible is arranged mostly by genre, right? So we have history books, and then we have the poetry books, and then we have the prophets. But if you read through the Bible chronologically, what you'll find is that you'll read through certain sections of history, and then you'll flip over and read the prophet who spoke at that point in the history of Israel. And, and so you can get, you know, on, on Bible apps on your phone or whatever, where you can see how to do this. And, and as you read through the Bible chronologically, it just, it opens up so much as you see the, the history of Israel getting closer and closer and closer to the exile. And yet the way in which all along God was speaking to them through the prophets and which prophets came at, at different points. And, and the prophets said so much to, to Israel in that time, reminding them of the promises of God, both of the curse and of the promise of restoration. So I'm going to highlight for us now three main messages that the prophets spoke or that God spoke to his people through the prophets in this time as, as they approached the exile and then as they actually went into the exile. There's, there's, the prophets said a lot more than this, but just for the sake of, of this morning, I'm going to highlight three messages that the prophets spoke. Number one, the prophets spoke and reminded the people that the exile was not going to be permanent. So many of the messages God gave was reminding them of, of what he had said in Deuteronomy 30, that he, he was, yes, he was casting them out from the land, but he was going to restore them. He was going to bring them back. God even gave them a timeline, right? Through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter, tw chapter 29, he told them it's going to be 70 years. Right? And that's where Daniel chapter 9 comes from, as Daniel's reading Jeremiah the prophet and says, okay, Lord, it's getting close to 70 years. Please send us back. They could almost count it down. They knew before it began that it was going to end. Second, the second major message that, that God spoke to his people through the prophets in this time was that the son of David was still coming. And this was so important because God promised to, to David, you're going to have a son on the throne for how long? Forever. And then Jerusalem gets destroyed. And the palace gets destroyed. There's no throne to sit on. And, and there's no king. And it made people ask big questions. Like, you know, what happened to God's covenant with David? Is, does an empty throne in Jerusalem mean that God's finished with us? And so through the prophets, God assured his people that he'd not forgotten about his covenant with David. 
So listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah. These are familiar words to you, but put them in context. Isaiah spoke these words right around the time that the northern kingdom was going into exile. And right around a time where he was promising the southern kingdom that exile was going to happen to them if they didn't change, if they didn't repent. And right around that time, Isaiah says, for to us, a child is born To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Man, that comes alive when you understand it in its context, right? And it was about a century or so after Isaiah spoke those words that Jeremiah prophesied. No, no, Jeremiah prophesied this literally as Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies of Babylon. The exile is about to happen. And Jeremiah prophesied, In Jeremiah chapter 33, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, right? And the idea there is that the house of David was like a tree and in the exile, it was getting cut down. But God says there's going to be a branch that's going to grow. A righteous branch will spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it, that branch, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We could go to so many other places that say the same thing, but... Right in the midst of the darkness of the approaching exile and then the exile itself, God was promising to his people that he had not forgotten his covenant with David and he would keep it. The son that he had promised was still coming. Third message. Through the prophets, God foretold that a new covenant was coming. Now this also was such an important message for them to hear because the exile was the final proof that God's people could not keep the covenant that he had made with them at Mount Sinai. They couldn't. Now listen very carefully. The reason for this was not because there was anything wrong with the covenant. It's that there was something wrong with who? Them. Us. If you read Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul really explains this dynamic. It's one we've seen all along in this series, right? The problem with the world is us. It's our sinful hearts. We want the wrong things. We love ourselves more than we love God. Our hearts are desperately sick, as Jeremiah says. And the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, for, for all of its glory, it didn't address or fix this problem. In fact, it just highlighted the problem, right? Because the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai required that Israel be faithful 
and obedient. And so it just proved, it just highlighted the fact that all of the promises, all of the threats, all of the second chances and third chances and fourth chances and 500th chances aren't enough to change our hearts. We need something more. And if you were to read through the history of Israel, you would say, what do we need? The answer you would say is, well, we need new hearts. And so God promised through the prophets that this was coming. So again, through the prophet Jeremiah, again, Jeremiah writing in the shadow of the Babylonian invasion, God gave these incredible words through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Right? Do you hear what's going on? New covenant, not like the covenant at Mount Sinai, which they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We could spend all morning, we could spend a whole month on this passage. But did you hear the big idea here? God promised there's a new covenant coming. And it's finally, finally, finally going to deal with the problem. Our hearts, it's finally going to address this. It's not going to be like the old covenant that we can just break willy-nilly. God's going to make sure that this covenant gets kept. And he's going to do that by putting his law on our hearts. We're going to obey God from the inside out in this new covenant. And what that means is that all of the members of this covenant, from the least to the greatest, will know the Lord. You're not going to have a covenant full of people who don't actually know God, which is the problem that, that existed before. No, in this covenant, no one's going to have to go to their other member of the covenant and say, hey, you should really know God, because they, they all will. And God promised to forgive his people's sins and remember them no more. Isn't that a message of hope that just shines like a firework in the darkness? Similar things were spoken just a few years after that by the prophet Ezekiel. So Ezekiel was one of the exiles. Ezekiel was one of the guys taken into exile and through Ezekiel, God promised this about the new covenant. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols I will cleanse you. Listen to these words of hope. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Such amazing promises. The, the hope that we need is finally coming. We're going to return to these words later in this series. 
So what have we seen so far? God sent his people into exile. But in that exile and up into uh, leading up to it and in that exile, he continued to remind his people of his word, of his promise, and tell them that the future was very, very bright. And so those promises were there on the books just waiting to be fulfilled in the darkness of the exile. And after 70 years of exile, just like God promised, he began to, to do some of these things. So if you are reading through the historical books and you turn to the book of Ezra, you'll read how the new emperor, Cyrus, told the Jewish people, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And he even told the nations around them to give them supplies to help them do this. And as you read through Ezra, I mean, Ezra just kind of feels like the sun coming up after, after a long, dark night. You see these amazing things happening. Exiles coming back to Jerusalem, the temple being rebuilt and dedicated, the priests returning to their service, the Passover being celebrated again. I mean, this, this had been a, a ruin for 70 years. And all of a sudden, there's, there's life and things are happening again. Things are looking up again. And then we get to Ezra chapter 9. And we find that the people are breaking the covenant again. It's almost unthinkable after all that they've been through that this would be happening, but it is. And so the book of Ezra ends with the people coming clean again. And then after Ezra, we turn over to Nehemiah. Now again, if we understand the way the Bible's arranged, Nehemiah is chronologically the last historical book in the Old Testament. Nehemiah was written for the main character in the book, Nehemiah, who was used by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and cause the city to, to be populated again, right? So the temple had been rebuilt in Ezra, but then you get to Nehemiah and they actually build the walls of Jerusalem and people start living in the city again. And Nehemiah is full of just incredible things, right? Again, the, the emperor making this happen and supporting the work. And we, we read about Jerusalem being rebuilt and the people gathering in the city to dedicate it to the Lord. And, and then as they're there, they have the law read to them and they pray and they confess their sins. And they go so far in Nehemiah's in chapter 9 and 10 where they draw up a, a document in which they say, we promise that we, this time is going to be different. Those words sound familiar? This time will be different. This time we're going to obey God's law. We're going to follow his covenant. And they signed it and pledged it. I mean, if this were to happen today, we'd call this a revival. It really, it, that's what it looks like. So then Nehemiah has to go back to Persia because he had a job. And then after a few years, he made a visit back to Jerusalem. You read about it in, in Nehemiah 13. And he comes back and he finds the people obediently keeping their promises to God, right? Wrong. Nehemiah chapter 13, the last recorded history in the Old Testament is gut-wrenching. Because Nehemiah comes back, he finds the sworn enemies of God, the, the guys that were opposing the building of the wall, renting out rooms, actually being given them for free in the temple itself. The people had stopped giving as they had been commanded to do. And so the priests didn't have enough to live on. And so the priests weren't working in the temple and were out having to just work normal jobs to support themselves. People were working on the Sabbath, just like God had told them not to do over and over again. And many people, including the high priest's own grandson, were once again 
disobeying God by, by marrying the pagans around them who hadn't converted to worshiping the one true God. And so one last time, Nehemiah cleans house, and then the book ends. And that's the end of the recorded history of the Old Testament. Now, Nehemiah is the last book of history in the Old Testament. But remember how I said that the history and the prophets kind of go together? And so if you turn over in your Bible to the last book in the Old Testament, the actual last book as it's arranged in your Bible, you'll find the prophet Malachi. And Malachi was the last prophet. Malachi was a prophet that was around at the same time as Nehemiah. Right? God raised up Malachi to kind of support the work that Nehemiah was doing. And it shouldn't surprise us, Malachi doesn't have warm and fuzzy messages. Malachi has a message that says, if you don't change, irreversible judgment is coming. So I want, I want to read these words for you from Malachi chapter 4, the last words of the last prophet. Malachi chapter 4, for behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. By the way, he's not talking about the pagan nations here. But for you who fear my name, for that, the remnant, those within the people who still feared God's name. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from its stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet because right? they'll be burned up on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen to these words. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And the book closes. The last words of the last prophet. God has spoken one last final warning. And after that, heaven was silent. Years stretched into decades, which stretched into centuries. And God said nothing. History tells us that a lot of very important things happened in this period this period of heaven's silence. As Malachi was speaking in Jerusalem, there was a philosopher by the name of Socrates who was doing his thing in Athens. Socrates had a student named Plato who had a student named Aristotle. Aristotle was the personal tutor to Alexander III of Macedon, who we know as Alexander the Great. And so 100 years after Malachi's time, Alexander the Great began to conquer the known world. And the city of Jerusalem in the tiny province of Judea became a part of the Greek empire. And then Alexander died and his empire got split up and 
Eventually, after some back and forth, Jerusalem found themselves under the control of a king named Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes. This, this king was vicious. He wanted to force the Jews to adopt Greek culture and to adopt Greek religion. And he did everything he could to force them to stop practicing their religion, to stop worshiping God and to worship the Greek gods instead. So he's the one who went in and sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem and tur turned the temple in Jerusalem into a pagan shrine to, to stop them from using it. But there was a revolt, the Maccabean revolt. You may have heard of that before. That's what they celebrated at Hanukkah. And in, in, in 160 BC, after seven years of fighting, the Jews, led by the Maccabeans, finally won their freedom. So just to give you some, some context here, to put this story in, in a timeline, 400 years after Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, 400 years later, for the first time, the people of Israel were free again, free to worship God, free to rule themselves. But you're probably not going to be surprised to hear that things didn't go well after that. Because even though they'd won their freedom, the, the rulers of the people became totally seduced by the Greek culture and even the Greek religion. And so over the next decades, this free group of people became more and more and more corrupt and more and more and more pagan. In 63 BC, two brothers were fighting over who got to be the next high priest. At that point, the office of high priest had turned into a, a, a very powerful political office. And this fight turned into a literal civil war. Literally, armies fighting, killing each other over who gets to be the next intercessor between God and man. I mean, it, things had fallen so far. But it's what happened next that's so staggering. 63 BC, both brothers turned to the new world superpower, the Roman Empire, and asked the Romans to come and intervene on their behalf. I remember when I learned this for the first time, I almost couldn't believe it. I mean, because we all know, right, that when we come to the next stage in the story that the Romans are occupying Judea and Galilee. Do you know why? Because they were invited in by two brothers fighting over the office of high priest. Isn't that, isn't that mind-blowing? And so in those decades before the birth of John the Baptist, the people of Israel, once again, oppressed by a foreign power, and it was their own fault. The reason that I took a few minutes here to give a bit of a history lesson here is, is that we really need to understand an important point. Israel never really came back from exile. That's the point of this. Israel never really returned from the exile they came back from Babylon, but Babylon was in them. And by that, I mean their hearts were still far from God. So even when they were free, they weren't. Their hearts had, had not been changed, and so they were still in spiritual exile. 
and then by their own choice, once again under the oppression of, of another world power. And so what could they do now? Nothing. Except wait. Wait, in, in the words of Luke chapter 2, wait for the consolation of Israel. And hope against hope that God had not finally forgotten about them and left them there for good. Hope against hope for the promises to finally be fulfilled. Hope against hope for the son of David to finally come. And that's where we're going to end this morning. I know this is not a, a typical place to end a message, but I'm doing it on purpose because I want us to feel it. I want us to feel the waiting, the longing, the hoping. I want us to feel how desperately the people needed a savior and how bleak and hopeless it would have been had God not stepped in to keep his promises. Because this isn't just about them, this is about us. I want us to remember this morning just how desperately we need a savior today. I want us to feel just how much at God's mercy we are, how hopeless we are apart from God stepping in to do what he promised. I want us to also remember just how much of our world is still living in exile, in lostness, without hope and without God. It's good for us to be reminded of what that feels like. If you're here this morning and you don't know how this ends, if you're here this morning, you don't know who the savior that comes is, please don't leave today without talking to someone who does, who can help you, who can show you. You need to know who this is. And I'm taking a risk by leaving us here. But for those of you here that do know who the savior is, I'm inviting you this morning and even this week to get a taste again of just how badly we need the savior how desperate we are for him to come. And that apart from him coming, we have no hope. So I'm going to invite the team up. We're going to end this morning by singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. These words were written for Israel in exile, but they were really written for us. We're hopeless apart from Emmanuel coming. It's good for us to remember that. Oh God, would you help us in these moments to taste how desperately we need our Savior. God, I thank you for your promise. I thank you for the celebration that we know is coming. I thank you that we're not still waiting for our Savior to come. But God, we can't help but think about those who still are. 
Help us to want to do something about that this week. Thank you, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, that you did come. Remind us again this week of how much we need you. Amen. You can be seated. I have one more word to speak, though, as we, just as we finish up. Next Sunday is going to be a party around here. We begin the next part of our series. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. We have baptisms. It's going to be a good morning. We're going to be singing a new song next Sunday as well. That kind of is going to be a theme song for this next stretch of our series. And we want to help you learn it in advance. And so last week I talked to you about the new section of our website, the, the pastor's blog. And so this week, probably Tuesday, I'll be putting up there a link to a, a YouTube video where, where you can listen to the song that we're going to be kicking off our celebration next week with. And so I'd encourage you to, to go check it out Tuesday and, uh, and, and to, to listen to that song a few times this week and be ready to praise the Savior next week who we know did come. God bless you as you go. May he be with you this week.